Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 85, recorded May 31st, 2012. Our 31st issue of our 90 series. Whoa, we're blasting through them. We are, and you're not going to believe this, but we're ex- exactly halfway through uh, DC's run of this Star Trek series. Oh, cool. So there's only 80 issues total, so we're finishing 39 but we've already done 70 71 and 72 so we're technically a little over halfway cool very good well i I do enjoy them yeah they're pretty good um starting with 70 uh, as you remember they start going back in time and doing kind of uh random uh jumping all over the timeline but up until then it's it's based after star trek 5 and before star trek 6 yeah, so. As we've been uh, enjoying with a somewhat aged crew, but still full of pluck. Yeah, I always thought it was they got the raw deal um, at the end of Star Trek Six because it sounded like they were all too old to go, and they were going to mothball the ship and stuff like that, and the ship was only two movies old at that time. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I guess there was a new generation to take over. Exactly. Maybe the next a gen, maybe. next generation. Perhaps. Hey, next gen. Hmm. Yes. Anyways. And uh, they, did a, they did a fine job. So, uh, old news, I'm sure, by the time this comes out, but uh, you had mentioned there might be a theatrical release in the next gen's future? If you're listening to it July 22nd, go buy your tickets. It's actually July 23rd. That's what I thought, yeah. Yeah, there's going to be a theatrical release of... Yeah. Two random episodes from Star Trek Next Generation Season 1. So, uh, having never seen uh, an episode on the big screen, that could be interesting. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, I'm not too happy with the two episodes they chose. Um, Where No Man Has Gone Before, which is the Traveler episode, and Data Lore, which is obviously Data Finds Out He Has a Brother episode, which is a good episode, but is that really one you would pick to... To do as this one-time event? No. But first season was not the best season of Next Gen. A good season, but not a great season. Right. Yeah. I mean, the logical choice would be to do the pilot, but it's not all that great. Right. So, well, I think it'd be cool. Although one thing I definitely noticed, because I've got the uh, the Blu-ray first season, um, you know, little taste they're giving you a little taste Blu-ray uh, with uh, three episodes, including the pilot. Um, it, it's narrow. I mean, it's really hard to get around because when you pop a Blu-ray in, in a modern TV set, it is as wide as all get out. But you pop this uh, next-gen Blu-ray, and it's pretty narrow, as it, as TVs were back in the 90s, but early right. 90s. Meaning that, that that it's doesn't have – it has the um... – Letterbox on the the left and the right. Is oh, that what you 
Oh, big time. Yes. Okay. It's 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 you know it's an old TV show. I mean right. that's really amazing. That I'm calling it an old TV show, but it really is, and it's pretty. It's a pretty narrow picture, which you're not used to when you pop a Blu-ray in. Right. And you're talking about old, and and uh, you're right because this this event that they're doing is is called Star Trek: The Next Generation 25th anniversary event. Oh, I feel old. <laughs> Oh man, I feel old. So, twenty-five years. I, I remember it when it was uh, Taz's twenty-fifth anniversary. Ah, and now it's next gens. Yep. Anyway, so, so something to look forward to. Yeah. So uh, go buy your tickets. Cool. When you listen to this. That's right. I'm sure Paramount and all the fine folks there would be happy if you would. Okay, so shall we get on to today's show? Yeah, let's jump into today's episode. So we're talking uh, Star Trek Volume 2, issues 37, 38, and 39. We continue the Tabukin Syndrome. So I have the pleasures to do 37. Uh, It's entitled Prisoners and is part three of the Tabuka Syndrome series. The writer is Howard Weinstein. Penciler is Gordon Purcell. Inker is Carlos Garzon. Letterer is Bob Pinaha. Colorist Tom McCraw. And editor is Kim Yale. So the cover shows a very white-haired McCoy uh, kneeling on the ground with a lifeless body of a, a young woman in his lap. His left arm is raised to the heavens with his fist tightly clenched uh, in a very gone-with-the-wind type pose. Behind him, Dr. Abby Wilson is looking on in disgust. So scattered around both of them are more lifeless bodies. We can see some Morone spacecraft uh, racing across the skies above them. So the story starts off with Sulu in the command chair of the USS Excelsior. Uh, The bridge is being rocked by some alien fire. Sulu orders red alert and battle stations. Security officer Berger gives the captain the status that the shields are going down, and that if they take any more punishment, then eventually these little crafts will eventually hurt the mighty ship. Commander Ran reports that there's a dozen or so alien craft, and that they're regrouping for another attack. A few more blasts across the shields, and then Sulu finally gives the order. Fire! A fierce battle ensues, with the Excelsior taking several more hits from the smaller craft. But eventually the powerful phasers of the Excelsior soon make short work of the aliens and they retreat with their tails between their legs. Sulu gets the report that there are no life-threatening injuries. He then orders repairs on the ship to commence at once and he orders the helm to return them to the Tabukan convoy. Sometime later in Sulu's ready room, he informs Ran and Berger that a good captain knows when to stand his ground and fight but also when to call for backup. He plans to be a damn good captain, so he's going to go ahead and radio the Enterprise for some assistance. In the orbit of Epsilon Kicha, Kirk is preparing the Enterprise for departure to assist with Sulu's distress call. McCoy is pleading the good captain for permission for him and a small group of medical personnel to stay behind and help with Dr. Wilson. It is only when McCoy gets on his hands and knees and begs 
Then Kirk relents and tells McCoy that he can stay, but a security team will also be accompanying the good doctor. Aboard a Morone craft, Commander Vorden is watching the Enterprise break orbit and leave the planet. Enraged, he sends a message to the larger fleet near Tabuk. But he plans to disobey his mother, who's the queen, uh, her orders and the orders of the Romulan admiral to return to the fleet. He plans to stay near the planet and take Epsilon Kichi for himself so that he and his crew will get the respect that they so deserve. Aboard Dr. Wilson's ship, the Saltoris, McCoy is stretched out on the sofa, looking beat after a full day of helping the colonists on the planet. Dr. Wilson gives McCoy a hard time about being a lazy old man uh, when there is so much more that they need to do. The two are interrupted when one of Dr. Wilson's crew from the bridge chimes in with the news that the planet is under attack. The two race to the bridge and learn that another cloud has engulfed part of the planet. The two know that this cannot be a natural occurrence since this is the second time that it's happened. But before they can speculate on who's doing it or where it's coming from, several large alien craft decloak and start launching hundreds of satellites around the planet. A message is broadcast to the entire planet that they are now under the control of the Moron Dominion. Dr. Wilson contacts Commander Vorden. She's trying to ask him for permission to return to the planet so she can continue treating the sick. This concept of helping the sick is very foreign to Vorden, who believes that a person will either die or survive, and it is up to the gods to decide, not a mortal doctor. On the Enterprise, Kirk loses a match of chess to Spock. He admits that he's a little distracted about McCoy, but he knows the good doctor can handle anything that comes his way. Back on the planet, Dr. Abby is trying to take a swing at Commander Vorden. McCoy is holding her back. It seems that McCoy and Abby, along with the uh, Morones, have gone ahead and beamed down to the planet, but the uh, Vorden is not allowing them to venture out of the town in order to help the sick. Defeated, the two doctors storm out of the building and into the town's square. They are shocked to find four men hanging upside down, obviously dead. A bystander informs them that these were the crew members of a trade ship that tried to escape the planetary blockade. McCoy tells Abby that things could get a lot worse before they get better. To be continued. Not a bad issue. No. No. Uh, it's good to see uh, Captain Sulu in action. In a very uh, nerve-wracking attack. So many ships from so many sides. Yeah. And then the and then the, I thought the end was really cool too. With the yeah, so so those uh, uh the, those merchant uh, folks that tried to get away yeah, uh, are hanging upside down dead. It, it reminds me of Game of Thrones or something. Okay, I haven't seen Game of Thrones, but yeah, well, I get the it's, concept. It's a, kind of a sort of a Middle Ages kind of uh, template, so they got chopped off heads on pikes and stuff so this isn't quite that bad but you know <laughs> dead bodies hanging upside down in the town square that's pretty rough stuff right yep 
but to to comment on your Sulu action, I, I did enjoy that uh, that battle between the Excelsior and those those little craft. Right. Uh, I, obviously, not a match for the Excelsior. Right. Which really has to make you wonder: what is their game plan here? The the morons. I mean, morons. Maybe moron is more likely. <laughs> it's like they, they purposely did what they could to separate the Enterprise from the Excelsior for what purpose unless you want to want to destroy the ship. So right. did, they, did they underestimate the Excelsior? Um, is, it the, is it the fact that Captain Vorden's ships were missing from the attack? Uh, that, you know, that, that, they, that they weren't as effective as they wanted to be? I don't, I don't know. Well, Vorden was always supposed to stay near the Enterprise. I mean, that was his orders. Try to delay the Enterprise and uh, stay with it if it departs. It's not until it departs that he finally breaks orders and stays in orbit uh, over the planet. I know, but, but, but yeah, but, yeah. So I'm just saying, I don't know what their plans were as far as attacking or engaging Excelsior and trying to split them up. It, it doesn't really make sense, but it, it it doesn't make sense to me either. And the only thing that does make sense to me is that the Romulan commander and the mother wanted Captain Vorden, that naughty boy, to uh, take his forces and join in on the attack on the Excelsior. Uh, how would he be able to? How would he be able to get there faster than the Enterprise? The Enterprise. Well, the, he was only ordered to return to the main fleet after the Enterprise was already heading back to help Sulu to begin with. So, how would Vorden get to the Excelsior before the Enterprise showed up and and really tip the scales on the Federation side? I'd have to go back and reread the issue, Donovan, because <laughs> I did not get that at all. Uh, I thought that when the Enterprise got there, um, at a certain point, he was supposed to join the rest of the ships, and he didn't. And that's the only thing I could think of that could explain how pitiful the attack on the Excelsior was. Right. I mean, what was the point of it? I mean, they, they did a little bit of damage. I mean, and then how many of their own uh, Maroon ships got, did they lose? Right. Uh-huh. And they're obviously not attacking him full force because the, the flagship, the one that the Romulan commander's on, or Admiral, whatever he is, it's never engaging the, the Excelsior. So you think that if they really wanted to... But that's a Romulan ship. Yeah, but still, if they really but, wanted to take out the Excelsior... Well, yeah, I agree. But I, I thought they were letting the Maroons do the, uh, do the attacking and they were yeah. staying back. Maybe. Now you would think that that would really tip the scales, but they never, they never engage. Nope. They always stand off and just let the uh, barons do their uh, dirty work. Right, and every time they attack, they seem to have more and more smaller ships. Yeah. So it's like they're keeping, they're only sending so much of their fleet every time, and it, it, you're right, it doesn't make sense as to why they don't just send them all, unless they're yeah. just trying to annoy the Excelsior for some reason. <laughs> I guess we'll have to see in future issues. We, we want to annoy you. <laughs> or distract them, maybe. Annoy uh, the exactly. wrong way. Yeah, we just want to bug you enough that we cause some damage, and then we give you plenty of time to repair it. Yeah, that's all. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when you saw those dead men swaying in the, in the wind, um, and you saw the colonists for the first time, were you surprised that they were human colonists? 
I was not surprised, but they didn't really actually say. I mean, it wasn't. They didn't actually come out and say that it was an Earth colony per se. It could have just been a Federation colony. I don't know. But um, so I guess I wasn't. Confu- uh, I wasn't surprised they were human, but yeah, they never said. Yeah, for whatever reason, I mean, because this is supposed to be pretty close to the neutral zone, right? Because right. I mean, th- they said in that first issue that. Uh, Tabuk, or however you want to pronounce it, the, the planet that uh, the two planets that are trying to get rid of all their weapons, mm-hmm. that they're pretty close to the neutral zone. Yes. So you would think that this colony, since it was on the way, is fairly close. So, yeah, I was just surprised that it was a human colony. Yeah. Hmm. But, I guess they're just taking their chances close to the border. Hmm. I mean, there is supposed to be a neutral zone, right? Right. But, eh. Anyways. I guess I guess they could have been there since the uh, Earth-Romulan War. Eh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool how uh, they did at least acknowledge McCoy's age. It made a joke out of it when he was on bended knee to Kirk <laughs> for him to stay on the planet to help people. That, that and, he didn't yeah. get back up. Well, yeah, he finally did get back up, and he's got a hurt knee. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. I like that. Uh, there's a lot of jokes about age in there. I mean, with uh, with Doctor Abby and uh, Doctor McCoy. Right. And what is the deal between those two anyway? It's like uh, it doesn't seem like it seems like they were always platonic. Right. And quite frankly, considering her rather prickly personality. And, of course, he's a little prickly himself. I can see why McCoy wouldn't have uh, made any moves, but I don't know. Well, I mean, wasn't he already married? Um, Back then? Oh, before he went to medical school? And, and I get the feeling that they knew each other in, in medical school, in or medical not, school. And not Starfleet. Yeah. Did he say right. that he knew her in Starfleet? or in? I, I don't remember, but it does seem like uh, a bit of a coincidence that they were both in medical school together, and then they both ended up in Starfleet together. I don't know. Right. But they've known each other a long time, so, uh, yeah. Right, because one just... of the things that I thought the 2009 movie did really well was establish that McCoy is a lot older than Kirk, yeah. and he had a career as a physician before yep. he went to Starfleet. I mean, yep. that, that's something that all the expanded universe of the original series has always talked about, but it's never in the show. Right. Um, you know, he had the daughter. He, he got divorced, really nasty divorce. He goes off to Starfleet to get away from Earth. Um, I really like that they kept at least the divorce and the reason why he joined Starfleet intact. I completely agree. And then uh, <laughs> it even gave a, a reason for his nickname. A different reason, but sure. Yeah. Well, what was the original reason? Um, Gene Roddenberry always liked it, always wanted to call him Bones because of the, you know, the Western uh, slang, calling doctors Sawbones and things like that. Oh, I see. Right. right. And, and, you know, he wanted this to be a wagon train of the SARS. Sure, so sure, sure. That's where Bones came from. Ah. But that's the creator coming up with a reason to call him that but it's never actually said in the in the show as to why Kirk calls him that so right that that and, origin and is just as good as any other yeah and, but and actually i like the 2009 movie origin better <laughs> that's, right, right. I, I like that that's great yeah it was funny 
I got nothing left but my bones. There you go. <laughs> Love it. Love it. But anyway, so what I was saying is that it, it's feasible that both of them could have been doctors on Earth yep. before either one of them went to Starfleet. Right. And she had a very short-lived life in Starfleet, it seems. <laughs> she can't follow orders is the problem. She just cares too much. Ah, oh, God, she cares too much, yes. That's what's funny. You, you get these really perkly, prickly personalities, whatever you called it a minute ago. Yeah. That are are kind of jerks, but they're the ones that are going way out of their way to, to keep any person alive. Right. And even disobeying orders to do so. Right. It's funny. And, and McCoy does that kind of thing on occasion also, but she really takes it extremely. Right. In extreme. She, she's a little... She's a little more abrasive than he is, though. Oh, 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 completely. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, there's no two ways about that. She, I mean, she's really nasty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she, you know, supposedly all for the best of reasons, but she, you know, you got to get along with people in any line of work, and she doesn't. Right. She must be a real joy to work for. Yeah, but but uh, also the reason why I thought maybe they never actually got together, got together. I think we talk about it a little bit more in next issue, but I, I was wondering if maybe he was married when they first met, and that's why they never got together romantically or anything. Right, that would be a good reason. Because they do well. I don't want to. Yeah, it's, about it's next issue where they talk about. more about uh, relationships, origins, relationship right. origins, and ex-husbands and things. Yeah, so let's let's table that one. I agree. So, did you think it was a little abrupt when they said they can't get back to the planet because of the blockade, and then the next page, they're all on the planet? Well, yeah, I, I thought there was going to be a big deal where they wouldn't be able to go down the planet, too, especially with those ringy things. I thought those uh, those satellites not only inhibited um, signals, you know, radio transmissions, but I thought that might have interfered with the transporters, too, but... Uh, I guess, you know, when you see them down on the planet, apparently the transporters work just fine. Well, I think the ship ends up going underneath the... Because when, when, the, when the little field goes on, yeah. they're above the field. Yes, they are. But then later, we'll see that the ship is actually underneath the field. So from from page 19 to page... <laughs> or from page 20 to page... Uh, 22, somehow the ship went underneath the field and they were able to beam to the planet. Which, it's just very abrupt. Cause, well, cause, that's cool. So how do you know it's underneath the field? Uh, so there, there's, a, there's a diagram showing here? Well, I don't want to say it, because later on... Because I'm scanning the uh, those pages and I don't see the, any well, kind of planetary picture. Well, it's not on picture. here. They're just on the planet. Right, right. But uh, in a later issue, we'll see that the ship, the ship uh, her ship, is actually underneath the the grid. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't want to tell you which part yet. Okay. But, but yeah, I just thought that was abrupt because he's saying, no, you can't go. And then the next page, they're already on the planet and she's trying to take a swing at him. (laughs) It was just really abrupt. Yeah. Which is also, it's just stupid. Really? You can try to take a swing at one of these creatures. I mean, good Lord. She's part Klingon or something. I think she, I just think has she it in must her blood. be. Part Klingon and part not too bright. 
He's, you're not, you're not, are you going to help anybody when they, uh, you know, take your head off? Well, from listening, from these last few Next Generation issues, uh, we know that Klingons aren't that bright because they can't control their emotions. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, of course I, I don't mean to offend any Klingons listening. Oh, heaven forbid. <laughs> heaven forbid. Right. Okay, so I have nothing to say about this particular issue. Okay, cool. Me either. Just my last, or uh, I said it in the synopsis, but that cover, he has pure white hair. What was up with that? McCoy? Well, there's, well, if you want to talk about the cover, let's talk about a couple of things. His hair is pure white. I agree. It's not pure white in the issue. It's, well, it's gray. You know what? It might not be pure white, because look at her hair. That's pure white. His might be a little darker. Uh, not by much, though. Right. Not by much. I, I, I would still call that depicted as pretty white hair. Right. Um, and another thing, you know how he's so, you know, violent and like, oh, darn you, you Maronis, Marones, whatever. It really is, and she's kind of like in the background, kind of like, oh my gosh, the wounded. And it's like, the roles are totally reversed in the book. Right. I mean, she's the one who's going after the Maroons physically, very ill-advised. And it's uh, kind of McCoy who's a little bit more uh, diplomatic. Right. And trying to say, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't try to piss these guys off so much. So, <laughs> Artistic uh, license. Exactly. So between the uh, the hair <laughs> and between the role reversals, um, and uh, you know they're showing multiple women in this. Dead uh, women. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know in this issue and the next issue, they're I mean they're mostly showing dead guys, but you know I, I'm sure there's some women shown too. I mean they're just really playing up the uh, you know. You killed a defenseless woman, right? Kind of thing, which we don't see quite as much of in the next issue, as we sort see more aftermath. All right. Well, it's a different aftermath, but I, I don't yeah. want to spoil anything. Okay. Um. So I shall do thirty-eight. Sounds good. Excellent. The cover shows the Enterprise and Excelsior, along with two planetoids, moving towards what appears to be an exploding brown moon or planet. The opening scene shows the Excelsior and Enterprise stationed next to asteroids with embedded Tabukan buildings. Chekhov's log explains that this is the Tabukan's main arsenal that is located between Tabuk 3 and 4. He goes on to state Dr. McCoy has not reported in from Epsilon Kataj yet, and Scotty is on the Excelsior helping with battle damage. Kirk and Spock are meeting with uh, the Tabukan leadership in their asteroid installation. Chekhov and Uhura are looking at the damaged Excelsior that fills the bridge's main view screen. Chekhov states with worry that he hopes Sulu's first command will not be his last. On the Excelsior in engineering, Mr. Scott is working with Commander Lucas as they complete the majority of the repairs from the attack. Scotty takes the lull in activity to give Lucas a gift. A fine bottle of scotch from Scotty's own private stock. The high-strung Lucas tells Scotty he does not drink, which shocks Scotty to the core. 
As Mr. Scott packs up his kit and heads for the transporter room, Commander Lucas asks him for help in trying to figure out how to safely transport the Tabukan warheads using the ship's transporters. Scotty puts his bag down and asks to see what Lucas has so far. In the asteroid installation, the Tabukan leaders show Kirk, Spock, Sulu, and Commander Rand around the armory that now houses all the very dangerous Trisolium warheads. Workers are removing the triggers that makes the warheads less dangerous, but still it's detonatable even without the triggers in place, due to the inherently volatile nature of Trisolium. The Tabukan leaders show how the asteroid installation came to be. Decades ago, after multiple accidents demonstrated how dangerous Trisolium weapons were, Tabuk 4's largest moon, Arion, became the home of their weapons manufacturing. When an accidental detonation blew away one-fourth of that moon, both planets moved their manufacturing to the asteroid belt between the two worlds. A decade later, they perfected the triggers, which was a dangerous and very difficult endeavor. Sulu and Kirk both try to speak at the same time, and Kirk defers to Sulu. Sulu suggests there may be a way to turn the difficulty of re-engineering the triggers to their advantage. On the Excelsior, Scotty and Mr. Lucas are sipping the scotch. Lucas is enjoying it more than he expected. Kirk and Sulu are at the doorway. Kirk tells them the Enterprise will head back to Epsilon Kitaj to investigate why attempts to contact McCoy have failed. As Scotty packs up his things to join Kirk in the transporter room, Lucas says he hoped they would be able to work more on the trisolium transportation problem. Scotty says they have made a good start on the problem already, and he bets a bottle of scotch that Lucas will be able to complete the work without him. At the transporter room, the two captains are saying their long goodbyes. Sulu says he intends to be the captain of the Excelsior for a long time, and that he will not take any foolish chances. Kirk says the Enterprise will return as soon as they can. Meanwhile, on Epsilon Kataj, McCoy is making a personal log entry, telling of the freighter ship recently destroyed by the Marone Orbital Security Grid. He describes how he, Abby, and their team's ongoing efforts to treat the wounded are pushing him to his limits of endurance. As McCoy and Abby are discussing Abby's ex-husband, they are rocked by an apparent nearby explosion that blows in the windows of their building. They rush out the front door to see the main building of the Colonial Administration Complex in ruins. Vordrin had taken it over as his headquarters. It's likely a bombing organized by a colonist rebel movement. As they run towards the building, to administer aid, their progress is blocked by a colonist named Paylock. He tells them to get away from there. Abby, in her typical straightforward manner, tells them they will treat anyone in need of their aid, including Marones. Paylock recounts the five colonists recently murdered by the Marones for supposedly being rebels and other atrocities. Abby says they will help anyone that requires help and tells McCoy to follow her into the building now. With murderous eyes and through gritted teeth, Paylock says, Help them and I swear I'll kill you. To be continued.
All right. So while it's fresh on everybody's mind, Paylock says, tell that to the five innocent colonists they already grabbed and executed for this act of resistance. So this bomb just went off and the the Morones have already grabbed five people and executed them. Seems pretty pretty quick. Pretty quick, especially when you see in the next issue what kind of shape some right. of the Morones are in. Right. Not to give anything away. It just seemed like an odd thing to say. I mean, this thing just exploded, and he's already saying five innocent people were killed. It, it seemed his choice of words was odd. Yeah. And quite frankly, you made a a good point there because I took it that they were already killed prior to the bombing. But um, you're probably right. You are right because they do refer to that in the next book. Right. Yes. So they're very quick, incredibly quick, in fact, especially considering, well, we'll see what kind of shape uh, the captain's in. <laughs> right. So just real quick housekeeping. Um, you you kind of skipped over the credits. Uh, there was two different ones on this book than last issue. Uh, the uh, inker is Arnie Starr, who who didn't do the last book, and the mm-hmm. editor, instead of being Kim Yale for whatever reason, is Alan, Alan Gold. Gold. Yep. So I thought that was odd that uh, for this one issue, Kim didn't edit. Yeah. And uh, maybe that's because we've got the late October, early October, you know, maybe the production kicking up needs more uh, editors involved. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was thinking, too. But all the writers and the artists and stuff are the same except for the inker. But Right. You think that would be the more time-consuming one than to – I mean, I, I don't want to belittle the editor's job. I don't know. But I would just think making the artwork would take longer than editing it. But I, I don't know. Yeah, and it really depends on how many editors there are to go around because these editors are working on multiple books, right. of course, where they seem to be teaming up uh, writers and artists to some degree, and they're probably just, I don't know, to some degree maybe working in an alternate fashion, right? To so, uh, you know keep the production going, right? Because they have geared up production apparently. Yeah, this is summer of 90, or Late summer, October. fall of 80, uh, 92, so. Right. It was, a, it was a big Star Trek. It was a good time to be Star Trek, ramping up for Deep Space Nine. <laughs> yes. A fine series. Yeah, we'll talk about it soon. <laughs> cool. So, um, well, what do you think? Uh, this issue was good. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of like the uh, Lucas-Scotty relationship. Um, I really didn't like Lucas at first. No. When he's yelling at that poor woman because she can't change physics. No, <laughs> or right. Or whatever. Yes, yeah, uh, starboard deflectors stabilized at 86% power. Not good enough. Yeah, well, take a chill pill, Red. Yeah, well, I like what Scotty says. Yeah. They'll get there when they get there. Exactly. And you can only force things so much. Sometimes they have to come in their own time. And he um, he accepts that. Right, So yeah. He calms down pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, he could have been a jerk about things. This is my ship, blah, 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 my engineering section, blah, blah, blah. But um, he seems to mellow out a little bit. Yeah. 
Right. I liked him after that, after he mellowed out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then once uh, he had a few scotches in him, he mellowed out even further. Uh, right. Yeah, well, I, 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 he was so worried about getting this transportation of the uh, of the warheads down right. I'm really surprised he took a break to have scotch when they hadn't worked it out yet. Well, he didn't want to. Scotty kind of made him do it. Well, but, okay, but when did, well, they never showed that to us. No, no, they didn't. But but they, I thought it was said that, you know, I don't have time to do this. Can it, can it be quick? Uh, wasn't that in this book? I don't remember that. All all I know is at the beginning, at one part, he says, I don't drink. And then Scotty's just so shocked, he just drops the whole thing. (laughs) And then, and actually, he's ready to leave. And then that's when he baits him back in to work on this transportation problem. And then you see nothing. And then the next thing you see, a little while later, after you see the other storylines going, uh, there they are drinking. (laughs) Which is kind of, hey, cool, okay. He must be loosening up. Right. And sometimes when you're working on a hard problem, sometimes that's just what you need, is not to focus on the problem quite so hard. Right. But right before he gives him that bottle, he he says that he needs to relax, and he says that it's not his best skill. And he he keeps saying, whatever you're going to tell me, make it quick kind of thing. Okay. So that, that's where I was getting a little confused earlier when I was saying that he said he didn't want to take a break. So, never mind. Oh, okay. I'm just trying to figure out why why I thought that. Oh, cool, cool. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so it was, he's, you know, he's lightened up a little bit. Because ever since the beginning, ever since the character was introduced uh, in, in the first uh, story arc here when when Sulu first got a ship, he was making comments about even questioning whether Sulu, uh, you know, was going to be able to cut it. Right. And it's like what a jerk. He needed Kirk to show him where the where the captain where the captain's chair was exactly. <laughs> really, really. Look at how old Sulu is. Come on, you young buck, you. Yeah, I think he's just a young guy, and he's trying to prove himself by by saying that. Oh, I'll, I'll fix it. Right. And uh, then he, he realizes he can't do it without some assistance from go. the old miracle worker. Ah, the old miracle worker. Uh, but that's good that he didn't just figure it out for him. So. Right. Right. Yeah, I did like that inter- in, in, that uh, interchange between the two of them. Right. So when Scotty gets called away, it shows him packing away things there on page 19. Okay, yeah. What are those that he's packing away? At the at the top of page nineteen. Well, let me look. I would have thought it would have been tools and stuff, but I really don't know. Let's see. I mean, it almost looks like it's a. Uh, it's got a big bulge on the side. It almost looks like he. He he put a baritone. You know what a baritone is? Instrument. Nope. It's it's a brass instrument. Are, are you on page nineteen or page eighteen? Uh, well, actually, I'm jumping around. I'm at page eight. All right. Look at page nineteen. Okay. It, it looks like nothing. He's been using up to this point uh some kind of data pad and then uh lipstick looks like lipstick <laughs> a big well, lipstick it looks like it's flat so I, I i was thinking is it supposed to be coasters for the scotch i, uh, I couldn't figure out what it was supposed to be yeah, i would guess it's a data pad of some kind and that's some it, sort and, of and that's the back of it but some I don't sort know. of wafer wafer yeah they're on the top of page 19 he's holding oh, something uh, that's a flat disc yeah 
Yeah, and I'm and I'm not looking at that. Uh, okay, <laughs> let me switch to that page because I'm talking about what I see on page 18. But let me go to 19. Yeah, 19. So 19, yes. It, it, it makes it almost look like he's putting a CD inside of a player. <laughs> right, right. So uh, I don't know whether – and when I saw that, it was like, what? so they think people are going to be using CDs, you know, in the 23rd century? Okay, maybe. Uh, of course, now we know that CDs and any kind of optical media has been pretty much replaced by flash memory, and who knows what they'll have beyond that by the 20, uh, but by this time period. So, But, yeah, it kind of looks like a, a CD player. They're going to rock out to some tunes. What are you talking about who knows what we're going to be – we know that in the 23rd century, they start using plastic discs or plastic wafers. <laughs> right. I've seen enough Star Trek, the original series, to know that you're going to punch in a big plastic cartridge thing, pull it out, pull it, push in another that's, one. That, that, that's extremely much larger than an SD card, yes. Right, yeah. So we're, <laughs> we're going to go retro there in the 2275. Exactly. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, I, I agree. But you can never... You have to give them a little leeway on that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I just well, wasn't sure what that was. I didn't know if it was special coasters that they were using with those glasses <laughs> or if it was something they were actually working on. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I took it as some kind of a, a recording medium, but it could have been coasters. <laughs> you know, Scotty's a little AR. You don't know that, but he's a little AR. He doesn't like to see... Uh, rings on the furniture so the cover pretty cool shot of the moon exploding even though the enterprise and and excelsior wouldn't have actually been there when the moon exploded but it looks cool yeah and what's the deal with those two planetoids on the left apparently going towards the exploding moon yeah i don't know i mean yeah it it does look like or maybe it's supposed to show shadow so maybe it's the light of the explosion is hitting the the little moon, and then that then what's streaming out behind it is actually supposed to be a shadow. Mm, maybe it looks like a similar, not perfectly the same, but similar kind of effects they're trying to get behind the Excelsior, right? So showing it moving towards it. And why would you be moving towards well, a moon like it. that I don't anyway? Think I don't think it is supposed to be moving towards it because even the the debris that's coming off of the exploding moon, it also has that shadow speed lines looking thing. And if it was speed lines, it would be heading towards the explosion when we know that it should be actually heading away from the explosion. That's why I think it's supposed to be shadows. No. Mm. It's just an artsy way of doing it. Hmm. Yeah, and considering where the explosion is coming from, you know, the, the, this side and to the right, I don't see where the shadows would be hitting those planetoids on the left, but eh, who knows? It's art, man. They can do whatever they want to. I know they can. Uh, I mean, after all, they've got the Excelsior and the Enterprise there when the moon is blowing up, and it happened, uh, like, what, over a decade ago? Right. You know, at least that long ago. Because what they say, it took them another decade to develop the detonators. Right. And then they had the whole Cold War. So you would think that that explosion was quite a long time ago. Exactly. Exactly. So. So, yeah. But the whole moon exploding and then all that stuff, 
didn't that smack a little of Praxis blowing up in Star Trek Six? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was that reminded odd. me of that. Yep. So I mean, you you're making this comic book that's kind of a prequel to Star Trek Six with Sulu in command, and then you're going to use an element from that movie, but this species just use the debris of that moon as a asteroid belt to build more space stations on whereas when praxis blows up suddenly the klingon empire is going to be dead in 10 years which i never got from star trek 6 yeah uh i'm pretty sure we could lose our moon and if we already had space travel that i don't think a human empire or government would suddenly fall i never bought that yeah it definitely would have – any major moon would definitely – if we lost a, a, a quarter of our moon, that would definitely change some things. But, uh, you know, wiping out life or whatever the hell they were saying, uh, I don't think it would. Well, let's say that it even destroyed the planet. Let's say that well, Kronos was destroyed. How about Space 1999? The whole moon left. Blast it. Right, but even if the whole planet was destroyed, the home planet oh, was destroyed, planet? that wouldn't destroy okay. the whole – Empire. No. I mean, you're on hundreds of other worlds. Uh, You would just plant your flag on another world, and that would be your new home planet. You think so? It it might. You might not be in the best shape for a while, but you're not going to be gone, which is what they were implying in Star Trek VI. Yeah. No. As we see, uh, even the Vulcans are on their way to survival after their planet explodes. Yes. you're, You're referring to... The 2009 movie. The 2009 movie. Yep. And we'll be uh, we'll be covering that those issues pretty soon. Yes, we will. Perhaps the slight perturbedness of Vulcans will be discussed. You mean their vengeance? Their vengeance. Vulcans' yep. revenge. So we'll, we'll talk more about that uh, in a little bit later. Cool. All right. Cool. What else you got on this one? I thought they went a little long with the explanation, the genesis of very hard-to-make detonators and asteroid-based uh, munitions dumps, manufacturing facilities. I thought that took a while to explain all that. Oh, really? I kind of liked it. I thought it was interesting. Okay, cool. I, I thought it went a little longer than it should have, but yeah, that's my opinion. Right, I get it. Yep. And really, that's about it. That's all to say. Okay. All right. Well, then we'll jump into the third issue we'll do today, which is uh, Tabuk Syndrome number five. As far as the credits go, uh, they're a little different, so I'll read the whole thing. Uh, Howard Weinstein, a writer. Penciler is Rob Wiggum. Inker is Arnie Starr. Letterer is Bob Panaha. Colorist, Tom McCraw, and editor is Kim Yale. So I guess really the penciler was the only thing different, and that Kim showed back up. So the cover shows a hand in the foreground holding a nasty-looking pistol of some sort. And it's being pointed at a very frightened Dr. McCoy and Dr. Wilson. Uh, And they look like they're about ready to jump out of a large broken window into a raging fire beyond it. So the story starts off with Doctors McCoy and Dr. Abby Wilson entering the ravaged building that had recently exploded in the last issue. McCoy says, Good God, no one could have lived through this. That was a great 
McCoy impression, by the way. The, a nearby groan of a colonist proves that he's wrong, and Abby is quick to point out uh, that he is wrong yet again in her uh, annoying way, just to take a little jab at him any time she can. Uh, they make their way through the building, triaging all the colonists that they find and helping the injured, and then they just keep moving along. Uh, they move some debris and find another small room that's been kind of closed off from everything else. Uh, within this room is the Maroon Commander Vorden, and he's lying in a pool of his own blood. And he is in the lap of his crew woman named Retha. He tries to prevent the doctors from attending to his injuries, but Retha allows them to do their work. Dr. Wilson fears that he is going to lose his arm but she will be able to save his life. Above the Tabukan weapons depot, several Mehran craft decloak and start attacking. Sulu receives word of this and he heads back at top speed. Aboard the outpost, the Tabukan leaders are shocked to find that the arsenal's shields are, have suddenly failed. They suspect that this is due to sabotage, but there's nothing they can do except wait for the next attack uh, that will destroy them all. Aboard the attacking vessels, the Marone are, are not surprised that the shields have gone down. This is all going according to their plan. As the ships are turning to make their killing blow, the Excelsior shows up and starts blasting the smaller craft. Damaged, they turn about and withdraw back into the asteroid field. Back on the colony, the two doctors are exhausted and they're in the makeshift hospital room. All of the injured have been treated to the best of their abilities. That's when the enraged colonist named Paylock arrives with that nasty-looking pistol from the cover. He accuses Wilson of being a traitor since she helped save Vorden's life. He tells her that he wants to kill her, but the colonists have voted and she is to be just exiled since she saved so many of the colonists' lives. As she prepares to leave, she and McCoy discuss that a life is a life and that a doctor's duty is to do whatever they can to save any sentient life, regardless of whose side they may be on. Back at the Tabukan station, the leaders have found the traitor, and he happens to be from the same planet President Sorgerin is from, which is Tabuk 4. He claims to be part of a secret group bent on returning the Tabukans to war. There is a brief squabble between the president and the leader of the other Tabukan world. Sulu soon put, puts an end to this, saying that they cannot second-guess each other. He tells them that they need to focus on the outside threat of the Mehrans. Sulu, Rand, and another crew woman walk into a briefing room. Once they arrive, Sulu notices that Engineer Lucas is late. Just then, as if on cue, the doors swish open and Lucas arrives. Sulu starts to chastise him for his tardiness, and then Lucas says that he has a very good reason for being late. Aboard the Marone craft that's orbiting Epsilon Kitaj, uh, Commander Bortster is scanning the Enterprise as it arrives into orbit. Commander Borster orders that Vorden on the planet is to not be informed of the Enterprise's arrival. 
His plan is that the Enterprise will take care of Vorden and then leave, never knowing that their cloaked ships were still in orbit. On the bridge of the Enterprise, Spock gives Kirk the skinny about the energy net that's around the planet. Kirk orders a few phaser shots to the satellites to bring the whole thing down, and Savick is all too ready to comply. On the Soltaris, which is within, with, which is underneath the web now, Abby is writing in her journal about how she might have neglected her family to pursue her career. McCoy interrupts her, and then soon after that, the bridge calls to inform both of them that the Enterprise has arrived. Kirk and his crew beam down to the planet and are greeted by Dr. McCoy and Dr. Wilson. Kirk is appalled by the gruesome display of the hanging dead in the town square. Kirk goes to the hospital room where the armless Vorden and the other Marones are. Vorden tells Kirk that the craft that he came in is sure to be long gone by now. Kirk tells the colonists and the Marones that he will be taking control of the situation and that they will be assisting with any of the sick. Paylock agrees, but he says Dr. Wilson is not welcomed and points her. On the bridge of the Enterprise, Spock and Savick have found several of the cloaked ships using the method that the Excelsior was using last week. They try to hail them, but when that does not work, they fire a couple of warning shots. The ships soon decloak and start to attack the Enterprise. Savick is able to make short work of them, and before long, they are signaling their surrender to the Enterprise. On the planet, Kirk tells Paylock to allow Dr. Wilson to stay, since she is only trying to save lives. Uh, Paylock relents, saying that he has no other option. Uh, this is mission accomplished as far as McCoy is concerned. Kirk orders them to be beamed up and to ready the ship for their return to meet up with the Excelsior. Then we flash to the Excelsior's bridge, and from their point of view in orbit, the Tabukan weapon station explodes with an ear-shattering shraboom. The Romulan admiral aboard his ship watches the station's destruction. The Mayron queen assures him that her people had nothing to do with its destruction. He says that they need to take a closer look, and that they need to see how they can turn this to their advantage. Next issue, The Conclusion. Ah, as the plot thickens. And I must admit, uh, I'm looking forward to the next issue because there's a few things I'm a little confused on. So uh, I'm sure they're going to um, explain things. Okay, what are you confused on? So uh, the, the big deal when uh, Lucas figured out how to transport uh, the weapons... Okay. If, if that's what he actually figured out. If that's what he did. Although, that's what he was working on. I assume that's <laughs> what he did. Unless he came up with something totally out of left field, which would be, why did you spend all that time talking about transporting the weapons anyway in the first place? Right. Anyway, so, um, I, you know, obviously they haven't let the shoe drop yet. At least I assume they haven't let the shoe drop yet. What he had worked out and how they were using it to their advantage. Right now, uh, some of the installations on the on the planetoid and the asteroids are blowing up, so maybe that's part of the plan. I'm not quite sure. 
Right. Yeah. I was kind of wondering if if exploding the the space stations had something to do with some plan that Sulu had concocted. Exactly. Did they transport up to the Excelsior? Uh, all, all those uh, those weapons. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Before you start blowing weapons, things up, not only all the weapons, but all the people. There was a lot of people on that space yeah, station. That too, right? Now, if they were control blasts that just wanted to, I mean, if they figured they didn't need that installation anymore after they went ahead and destroyed all the weapons in the long run, well, maybe they could put some control blasts that would look a lot worse than they actually were, so they wouldn't have to evacuate everyone. But maybe they did that too. I don't know. Right. So I'm looking to see exactly how all this is going to play out because I'm a little confused at this point in time. Right. I agree. Yeah. So is part of Sulu's plan that he wants to blow up the armory buildings in hopes of drawing the Romulans out or at least the Maroons? Because uh, they, they don't necessarily know Romulans are involved, right? Uh, no, they just suspect that the Romulans are giving them old uh, their, technology. Their old uh, cloaking technology. That's where they got it from. Right. I guess we'll find out next issue. Right. Yep, we will. Yes. Unfortunately, uh, I was going to talk about this later, but we're not going to be doing that issue right away. Uh, You will have to wait a a little bit to find out. Yes, good point. Good point. But I am looking forward to it. And it's going to be a bit of a wait, so I think I'll be going to read ahead of time. (laughs) (laughs) But unfortunately, our listeners, if they don't have the issues already... We'll have to wait a little longer. Exactly. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Right. So, you think that the Dr. Abby story is pretty much wrapped up and that that she won't be showing back up in the next issue? Uh, I, I think she'll probably show up. It's just that hopefully they won't be droning on as much about that. Because it does seem like they've kind of gotten to a point where they could have things wrapped up. Right. With that storyline. Right. But I'm sure I'm, th- I'm sure they'll you know McCoy and she will say, "Hey, one more time before everything's over." But yeah, yeah. And plus, it, plus, didn't did the when McCoy went down there the first time, they made an effort to say that he's taking six other doctors with him, or other medical staff and a security team. Exactly. Yet we've never seen any other of the security team or the medical staff. Well, you have seen the security team. It's just that they were just in the background in a scene. They haven't act- actively done anything. When when did you see them before before the ones that Kirk brought? Let me uh let me find the page. Because that's exactly something I noted too. It was like I mean, you, you, you talk about the security detail being down there with them to protect them, but you never see them. Uh, yeah, so take a look at page 9. The bottom left cell of page 9. And I also have something to say about that, too. Oh, you think that RoboCop-looking guy is one of the security <laughs> guys? I, I think he's one of the Enterprise security guys. Okay. Um, I mean, because he doesn't look like a colonist, not with that helmet stuff. And he's certainly not uh, any of the uh, Maroons. Yeah, you can't tell because you can't see his front, so you can't see what's on his helmet. Uh, Exactly. Or on his chest for a crown badge or anything. So, um, yeah, so he's like, 
but he looks like he looks like a security guy. But Do then stupid... in a few in a few panels, you know, hence from there on the next page, page ten, you see the uh I mean you see the uh the colonist guy Morlock or whatever the hell his name is. Paylock. Paylock. You see him threatening them with a gun and it's like, hold on a second. The previous page looked like it was a security guy. Right. So it was like, if there was a security guy, shouldn't he be doing something about this guy waving around a gun? <laughs> right. I don't know. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. I, I looked further back, and when Kirk shows up with his security guys that, that don't go anywhere, uh, <laughs> they are wearing the same outfit that this, this guy is wearing on page 9. Right. But I did not catch that that was supposed to be the security officer. I thought that was just one of the colonists. Yeah. Yeah, well, but yeah, what's he doing? And where's the other doctors? Uh, right, and who knows? Maybe the doctors show up in the background in some odd panel somewhere, but they're never interacting with McCoy and uh, Wilson. And Wilson, right? At least that I recall seeing. So it's like, well, okay. And then when then when McCoy leaves, to these invisible doctors stay. Because Kirk kind of implies that they'll stay there until everything's fixed, and then he just leaves. Yeah. No, good, good question. So I don't know if he's, he's leaving and leaving the doctors again, but... I don't know. I got a question for you, though. All right. Another question, which has been burning my mind for several issues. Uh, how the heck does Wilson's glasses stay on? <laughs> She's got no... I mean, she's got, like, these almost, like, futuristic horn rim glasses or whatever, little old lady kind of things. But she's got no arms going back to uh, her, her, her ears. I'm just wondering. Uh, 23rd century technology. <laughs> Magnetomic adhesion on the bridge of her nose. <laughs> right. Because they're just hanging there, just sitting on her nose. No, no, uh, no arms. Right, and they do have that cool scene where she actually takes them off and, and really emphasizes that they're just floating. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I thought, that, I thought that was good. And that she's really tired. Right. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I like that, kind of. Yeah. Uh, oh, the glasses or what? Yeah, just that they're there. Kind of hanging there? No, yeah. ex- no explanation. Well, obviously she's got that same allergy that Kirk has. Oh, where they can't replace the eyes or whatever. Or right, whatever the drops or something is supposed to magically fix your eyes. Right. Or whatever that was. Yeah. What's funny is that, uh, and it's kind of off subject, but Commissioner Gordon, um, <laughs> who is, I would think so. Barb. This is Commissioner Gordon in the future, so it's actually Barbara Gordon in the future. She becomes commissioner, just like her father. Oh, okay. In the uh, Batman Beyond series, and okay. she had glasses just like that. They they just fit on her face. This hung there, and no arms that went behind her ear. They were just there, <laughs> and you never cool. questioned it. it. No, that's just that's just how they wear them in the future. Exactly, it's the future. What do you want? You can have Batman flying around with rocket boots. You can have her wearing armless glasses. Batman flies around with rocket boots like Spock. That's cool. <laughs> More like Iron Man. <laughs> oh, I've never seen Batman Beyond. Oh well. It was pretty good. the The cartoon was good, and and they've made it into comic books, so they're good too. 
Cool. It's actually considered canon now, when before it was just considered a cartoon. Oh, well, I guess, uh, so how many years has that been on? Uh, the cartoon's been off the air for 15 years or so. Oh, God. But how long was it, how long was his run? I don't know, four or five years, something like that. That's pretty it, good. it wasn't terribly long. Well, four or five years is better than the original Star Trek. <laughs> That's true. Better than... Um, it's probably on par with Enterprise. I can't remember how long it lasted. Yeah. It, it lasted four or five years, and then they did a, a made-for-DVD made movie, and then mm. the series just ended. Oh. Huh. Which was disappointing. Because after I watched that movie, I was like, I want to start watching that show every every Saturday morning. Oh, it's canceled. Uh, Anyways, this is Star it, Trek. Is it on Netflix? Uh, no, but they have them on DVD, so you can go buy them. Oh, there you go. Hey. hey. Mm, yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, so uh, Sulu got to do a little Kirkian speech, eh? To convince the two uh, Dabukan leaders to cool it? Yeah, I thought that and, was good. And work together. That was cheesy. Yeah, it was cheesy, but come on. If he's gonna, you know, if he's gonna be a captain, you know, has learned anything from Kirk, he's gonna learn how to do long speeches so that finally people will agree with you just to <laughs> shut you up. Well, how how does he know that? Because usually when these long speeches are happening, Sulu's still on the ship, sitting <laughs> at the station. Often, yes. Right. Very rarely does he do those speeches on the beach. <clears throat> I especially like that one where. You know, they're down on the on, on the primitive planet or something, and then there's like that big, huge, uh, like sphinx almost kind of thing, but it's more like a dragon or something. And Kirk is telling them, "We can feed. We can teach you how to feed a hundred where you could feed only one before." I just uh, ah. <laughs> all those speeches. You love them. Ah, I love them. Love them. <laughs> a chance for uh, Shatner. Shat to really strut his stuff. There you go. To really shat it up. To really shat it up. Exactly. That should be a verb. It should be. To shat. Uh, anyway. So good to see uh, Sulu doing a little bit of that. I thought it was pretty cool. Yep. Yep. So, real quick, on the cover, that, that pistol that that guy is holding. Yes. Isn't that incredibly impractical <clears throat> looking? <laughs> it looks very involved. Right. But why would it be? I it, don't know. It's just supposed to shoot a phaser. Exactly. It's got a lot of detail to it. A lot of parts. I mean, it's a glorified flashlight, so why does it need all those parts? Right. It looks yeah. like a ship, like a like a Star Wars type ship. It looks even... Yeah. Ooh, that's a good point. The Star Wars ships tend to have a lot of extra plastic parts on them to make them look more detailed and more realistic. Yeah. Right. It's like one of those. Right. It looks almost busier than a uh, Star Wars destroyer, but good question. And again, so they're emphasizing the dreaded situation that McCoy and uh, Dr. Wilson are in. And really, after such threats were made in the previous one, you know, even though Paylock was a you know a, a bit of a jerk in this one too, he kind of backed off. Well, yeah, once the Enterprise showed up. <laughs> oh, I mean, he did exile her guns. to her ship, so I mean, he did get his way. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, but this is making it look like uh, like they're going to get shot, and the McCoy's going to get shot too, and it's like, you know, 
I, I think compared to considering how nasty he was in the last issue and how they really teed things up, I think uh, I think Paylock was uh, kind of a dragon with no uh, claws, right. dragon with no teeth, uh, you know. Yep. Yeah. Toothless lion. Right. Yeah, this cover m- makes McCoy look like he's about to jump into the fire because he's so scared. <laughs> right, but look at that brown hair. Kind of brownish hair. Oh, yeah, he, he, he dyed it just for men. He did. He did. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. So I got a question. All right. Why is the Excelsior so far away from the asteroid armory <laughs> when the attack begins? Thank you. Yeah, he, he orders the ship to return. Where the hell were you going? Well, exactly. I mean, okay. <clears throat> so obviously they were far enough away that some damage was done. So, and then they, they you know, the, the, the big thing, ooh, got to get back. And then you see the ship heading off. At least he didn't order warp speed. Thank God but you he can did not see order that they warp, are speed. warp speed. Well, you don't know that. It has the rainbow coming off behind the nacelles. Rainbow. That's, Wait that's, a minute. What rainbow? That's warp. Okay, let me look. Let me look at that. I thought they were just going fast, but definitely subwarp. I mean, they're within a, a star. I mean, they're within a solar system. So okay. I mean, at least, at least he didn't call for that. Oh, I see what you're saying. He didn't call for it, but I mean, it's depicted. That that's the oh, that's oh, the universal <laughs> movie era. Version of warp. If you have a big rainbow coming out of your butt. Oh boy, uh, I think I think the the artist might have seen a few too many uh, uh, Technicolor Dreamcoat. What are you talking about? That's how the movie is. Oh yeah, blah 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 blah. I okay. So getting back to the original point, why are they that far away? I don't get it. I have no idea. I was wondering the same thing. And another thing is they apparently have a lot of green planets that look just like everything else because look at the previous page, page four, and they're attacking the asteroid base. There's a green planet that looks kind of close by. Right. And then you see on the next page the Excelsior, and that green planet is right to its right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is that supposed to give you some kind of a, I don't know. It, it just seems like they're not that far away. Right, and, and what's they shouldn't even be. Otter is that um, on page four, there's like this wispy purple smoke. Oh, it that kind of carries on. over onto page five, which yeah. makes it look like the Excelsior and this space station are right next to each other. If that's, I agree. If that's the same wispy purple smoke, I agree. And so, if that is supposed to be a continuation, then there are two major sized green planetoids if not planets right um hanging around yeah yeah Good well point. i could never figure out what that purple wispy stuff was anyway yeah so uh a cosmic ribbon it's the, it's the nexus oh it's the nexus just making it it's just hanging around tour yeah. around the universe <laughs> exactly it's it's all over the place they ever explain where the nexus came from or was it just there i i think i think the uh the current technology of the day could not possibly explain such a thing uh, it's just too too far beyond the current technological state. Gotcha. So I was wondering, though, is there any place the Excelsior should be close to other than the biggest stockpile of some of the most explosive weapons known to the Quadrant? 
to my knowledge, that was his that was his job. <laughs> <laughs> that was his orders. Okay, hello. Anyway, yeah. No, nope. I had the same. I had the same question. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when I was reading the synopsis, it even seemed more absurd when I was reading it. And I was just like, where is he? <laughs> yeah, anyway. Good point. So, uh, I have a question that kind of confused me a little bit. On page 13, I'll right. wait while you swing over there. I am there now. Alright, so it has Rand... Sulu and a black woman walking down the quarters, obviously yeah. going to the briefing room. Right. And then the next panel shows the door opening, Sulu walking in, and then the next panel right below that is the three of them inside the briefing room, but suddenly that black woman has turned into a white man. <laughs> and he's even talking. And and what he's saying, you know, it even carries over to the next uh the next panel oh that's very good and point. it's a close-up yeah. of the black woman so yeah. she changed genders and and nationalities and color. in that one panel right how do you make that mistake i don't know i could but, see maybe changing the color on accident you know the colorists you know make a mistake but that's definitely a dude well i mean quite frankly if you take a look at the uniform uh, even the panel before, where they're walking towards us, the three of them in a row, she is a short person, much sport, shorter than Rand and Sulu, but she looks pretty well built. I mean, she looks like she's got pretty broad shoulders and stuff. Right. She's kind of buff, quite frankly. I mean, not a weightlifter or something, but she looks a little butch. Right. But, yeah, so, you know, it's like, yeah, definitely agree on the color. But the gender... I mean, they're all wearing the same uniform. Yeah, but she... I don't know. Well, you cannot, because you, of the broad shoulders. I don't know if the shoulders or just the way the hips and... Skin of the butt? Maybe. Yeah. Mm. And that guy seems taller than Rand. Yeah, and definitely wasn't in, when they were walking in the hallway. Right. Noticeably shorter than Rand. As a matter of fact, Rand's pretty tall in that hallway. Yeah, she's taller than Sufu. <laughs> right. So, anyways, that that just confused me. I thought, oh, another guy's there, and then, then the, and then especially when the dialogue carried over to the next panel, and it went back to the black woman, I was like, okay, uh-huh. that's a mistake. Yeah, it is. But maybe they figure they can get away with things on those faraway shots. I don't know. Maybe. I know I didn't notice it. And then Good I have catch. a Good I have a, a random nitpick that all of the Tabukan displays and stuff are all in English. Nah. Convenient for us, but I don't see that as being their native language. Right. And what's even more annoying mm. is it maybe moves back and forth a little bit. Right. I think when they were doing the shields down, they were trying to play with it to show you that maybe it's not really in English. Oh, okay. Because if you look on the top of page 15, where they're looking at the Enterprise on a, on a, some kind of view screen, right? there's some marks in the upper right-hand corner that are not English. Right. But I, that's... I, I, I don't know for sure if that's writing or not. But... Right. Yeah, but that's the, that's the Maroons ship. I was talking about the Tabukans. Oh, sorry. 
Good point. On the space station, like when the shields go down, right? It it actually says uh, defense field failure sectors three, four, five. Oh, good point. Well, you know, they're Federation guys now. That you know, you're forced <laughs> to use English then. Oh, really? Not even Esperanto. <laughs> I love Esperanto. Yeah. What happened, to Esperanto? Oh well. Well, once once the translators became common use, uh, they just didn't need Esperanto anymore. There you go. So what issue – wasn't this issue that talked about her late husband. Uh, was that last issue? Did we not talk about that? That was just before the explosion, which – didn't that happen at the end of last issue? Oh, okay. Did we talk about it? I don't think we did. Was it in your synopsis? Because I don't want to retread it if it was. I, I purposely skipped it. Oh, Okay. Do we I want mean, to talk about I, it? The only thing I said is they were talking about uh, marriage and husbands or something, and I did not go into the rest of it. There, there's not much to say except that this is the only time where there's some insinuation of the possibility of maybe some thoughts of romance between those two. Right. Um, and then that's when the explosion happens. Right. Very good timing. I think uh, McCoy was lucky on that one. So, uh, <laughs> Oh, you think she might have been hinting that maybe they should start up something? I don't know. I think she was trying to say that uh, McCoy might have been warm for her form in the old days. <laughs> uh, maybe. Because uh, she was saying right away, the only time you were only right once, McCoy, or Leonard, whatever she's calling him. Right, yeah, when he told her that her husband wasn't the right person for her. Exactly. Well, then who is Leonard? There you go. That's what it's leading to. That's what it's leading she's, she's warm for his form. Warm for his what? Warm for his form. <laughs> I've never heard that. Digging his chili. I've heard that one. <laughs> well, warm for his form. That's old. That's oh, well, that's why I don't know. why you haven't heard it. I mean, that sounds like something we would have heard in Happy Days or something. Are you serious? <laughs> nice. Nice. What else you got on this one? Um, nothing. No, I don't have anything. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how it wraps up, but I'm also I'm about ready for it to wrap up. Right. Yeah. I, this was an odd one. It was five issues long. It's kind of long. Yeah. And there's not a whole lot of story. It's a lot of running back and forth between the two planets. Right. Um, a little firefight here that, and it's basically a hit and run. Right. They decloak, shoot them a couple times, they go away. Exactly. So, it's kind of anticlimactic in a lot of cases. It, it really is. Yeah. You just want them to either go all out or exactly. go away for good. Let's let's bring that Romulan thing into stuff. Let's make it interesting. Yeah, because that ship looks cool. I like, like, like you said, it it is it is an awesome hybrid of the next generation Romulan ship and the Taz version of the Klingon ship. Right. It's a nice bridge design. Yeah, I really how like you it. got there. I got to what Next Gen had. Yeah, I, I I didn't see that when you said it. I didn't see the Klingon ship in it until you mentioned it. But now, I can't see it because of course it's there. <laughs> yes, it's right there in our face. Ah. Right. So yeah, so you can't wait till the uh, conclusion. But but uh, uh, you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to wait because uh, the summer's coming up, July. And uh, we are going to celebrate Star Trek movies. Ooh. The, the Star Trek movie. 
Yes. But unfortunately, Star Trek 2 or Star Trek 12, whatever you want to call it, doesn't come out until next year. So to celebrate it this year, we're going to do the the big countdown miniseries that led up into led up to the 2009 movie, which uh, is really good. And then we're going to follow that up with Nero miniseries, which kind of uh, explains what Nero was doing after he showed up and destroyed the Kelvin and before he uh, goes off to get Spock during those 25 years, which is also a good one. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. So we're going to do those uh, those two miniseries plus, and this is a different one, uh, the magazine Wired came out with a small comic story in, uh, I believe it was May 2009. So we're going to do that uh, story as well. So uh, it kind of ties in, obviously, with the 2009 movie. So it felt like a good place to stick that one. Cool. And so, it is May 2009. I have the issue right in front of me. Oh, yeah. The one with the big question mark? Exactly. Mystery box. It's the mixed mystery box. From the co-creator of Lost and director of the new Star Trek. Right. So we're going to be celebrating the new Star Trek three years late. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, so these these should be a good uh, – we're going to do three episodes of that, 87, 88, 89. And then 90, we're going to do the ongoing, our third, our third ongoing episode where we cover – Issues 7, 8, and 9. And uh, the main reason why we're doing this is because things happen in issues 7, 8, and 9 that tie into Countdown and Nero. So we want to make sure all if, if our listeners aren't actually reading the comic books, that they will know what we're actually talking about in 7, 8, and 9. Right. And, felt you know, summer movies, we might as well take a whole month and just dedicate it to... The uh, 2009 movie, since we've never really done that before. Right. And uh, besides, uh, I don't know about you, Donovan, but I got the 7 and 8, and it's burning a hole in my uh, reading stack. Well, I'll be honest. I could not wait, so it's already read. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're pretty good. good. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about them. Good. I'm looking forward to it myself. So, but before we get into all that, we still need to finish off June. Next week, uh, episode 86, we'll cover Next Generation issues 37, 38, and 39. Which, unfortunately, will start off another multi-arc, or multi-episode arc, which obviously we won't get to that until several, about a month down the road. Right. So the bottom line is the timing could not be better. The timing is horrible, but... There's never going to be a good time to do it, so right. I, I thought, you know, July, you know, let's let's do just it. dive in. Exactly. So Fate I'm first. looking forward to it. Looking forward to. Uh, I mean, to be honest, Countdown was what kind of got us into doing this in the first place because you were reading it, you got me to read it, and then I think it. I think I was the one that was like, "Hey, you know what? We both have that DVD. Why don't we just do a podcast?" That's right. This is your brainchild, Donovan. Right, but I really think fine that, brainchild it is. Us talking about countdown was what kind of got me to uh, to come up with the uh, this idea. So, right, I'm looking forward to talking about it again with you. All right, me too. All right, so until then, I guess we'll uh, sign off and talk to you guys next week. 
Sounds great. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.